the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, beginning in verse 10, and we'll read down through verse 12. Would you follow, please, in your Bible as I read Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 10. We have an altar of which they have no right to eat who serve the tabernacle. For the bodies, the carcasses of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without, and without is an old King James word that means outside. They are burned outside the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. We have been looking since the end of chapter 12 at what it means to be in the kingdom of Christ, because right at the end of chapter 12, being a Christian, believing in Jesus, is described as receiving a kingdom, and we have seen that involves a number of things. Number one, job one is loving the brethren. That's the standing order in this kingdom. Number two, it is the idea of purity, and that means pure from sexual immorality, pure from worldly defilement with the things, with greed, the stuff of this world. And then number three, as we saw last week, it is to be free from error. It is to adhere to the truth, this thing we call the gospel, which centers upon Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. In that discussion, remember that we had that expressed both positively and negatively. Positively, we're to adhere to the gospel. Negatively, we're not to be seduced or drawn away by false doctrine, false teaching, what he calls here strange doctrines, foreign to the gospel. And among those, you say, well, what exactly are some of these strange doctrines you're talking about? Laws that have to do with food, with what you eat and what you drink. And he said, it's a good thing that your heart be established with grace and not established with food and drink, which hadn't profited those who have been concerned with it. I shared with you uh, last week that one of the features of all the cults is that they always have these dietary laws that go along with them. It's strange. There are certain universal themes you find in the cults, and this is one of them. But... Bringing up the subject of food, the subject of meats, and again, meat is a good old King James word that generically meant food, sort of triggers another thought. It's the connecting word that there is a food that is important for the Christian. And that leads us right naturally into our text this morning there in verse 10 that speaks of we, the Christian believer, having an altar that we can eat of, which the Old Testament priest had no right to eat of. Notice that just as our natural life is sustained by food, some of us are doing a good job of sustaining our natural life by food, there is another kind of food that sustains the soul, that gives life to the soul of man. You recall that our Lord, in, after the discussion with the woman at the well in Samaria, his disciples had gone into town, remember, to buy something to eat. They came back. They found him. He wasn't hungry. They were saying among themselves, that means somebody brought him something to eat. And he, just, he explains, my meat, my food, my, my food is to do the will of the Father who sent me and to finish his work. That's the food that I'm living for and living by. And so we were reminded that, yes, there is a food that sustains our natural life, but there is another food for our soul. There is indeed a thing that we would call soul food. I'm not talking about chitlins. I'm talking about spiritual nourishment that gives life to the soul. Can I eat something? And lose weight by it. Everybody wants. To, I notice how everybody wants to take these pills and lose weight. I'm saying, you know, you don't get skinny by putting stuff in your mouth. That would, that's a no-brainer. You know, we want to put something in our mouth and get skinny by it. No, that's not how it works. It's the other way around. 
We want to take a pill and grow hair. We want to take a pill and fix, fix everything. But when it comes to our soul, the question is, is there something that I can eat and be saved? Is there something that I can ingest and have everlasting life? And the answer is yes. Yes, indeed. There is a food that gives eternal life to the soul of man. Our text reminds us that this letter was, after all, written to the Hebrews. Now, it should be a no-brainer. It was written to people who knew the law. In fact, there is one theory going around that it was written to priests who had served as priests under the Mosaic Law. And notice that most, the bulk of the book of Hebrews, has concerned itself with the priesthood with the various regulations and laws, and in every case showing that Christ himself is superior to whatever they might have had under the Mosaic law, the Levitical priesthood. They know that under the Mosaic law, a priest lived of the altar. He lived by the altar. He was sustained in his life by what he ate from that altar. Let me, let me just cause you, we're going to do some flipping around, so uh, go with me this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul just alludes to this fact. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 13, Paul says, Do you not know that they who minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? Remember the tribe of Levi didn't get any inheritance. They didn't have grain fields and flocks and herds. They got their food from what was given, what was offered there at the temple. Notice again, let me repeat that. Do you not know that they who minister about holy things live of the things of the temple, and they who wait at the altar are partakers with the altar? In other words, the priests that attended waited upon the altar where sacrifices are being offered oftentimes ate of the sacrifice. That's where they got their food. In many cases, it's where they got the food to feed their families. It's from what is being offered there at the altar. They would have been far more familiar with how sacrifice worked under the law of Moses than you and I are. I find that most places I go, it's not just you uh, that I'm picking on this morning, but almost everywhere you go and discuss these things, I find that most people are not all that acquainted with the fact that there were more than one kind of sacrifice to be offered under Mosaic law. In fact, that there were five different classes, roughly speaking, you could probably find exceptions here and there, but roughly speaking, there were five different kinds of classes of sacrifices that were offered under the law of Moses, and you'll find those in the first five chapters of the book of Leviticus. Leviticus being written to the tribe of Levi, especially to the priests, to inform them of how things were supposed to operate under their priesthood. I've asked the guys if they'll put a graphic up here on the wall that will help you sort of visualize these different offerings. Notice in the first chapter of Leviticus, we have the burnt offering that is described. Christian, what do you do with a burnt offering? Hey, I tell you what, the boy is not as dumb as he looks. No, no, I didn't. <laughs> you burn it. You burn the whole... I can't believe I burnt the whole thing. In other words, none of this sacrifice is eaten. It is all consumed on the altar of God. Okay? So, number one, the burnt offering... You offer the entire animal. It is all offered up to God Almighty. The second is called in the King James a meal, a meat offering. And that's very deceiving because there was no meat in the meat offering. It was, and I've changed the word up here, to a meal offering or a grain offering. It might be just the loose grain itself. In some cases, it was little cakes, uh, like we would say pancakes that were laid out, the uh, unleavened bread in certain cases, but in this case it is grain offerings that are being offered. That's the second class. And usually, I don't know of a single exception, usually the grain offering was offered along with the burnt offering. 
Okay? The third class is what is called the peace offering. It's described in Leviticus 3. And the peace offering was very interesting in that it was sort of a ceremonial meal in which God got a portion of the sacrifice, namely the fat that was around the inner organs. Now, keep in mind, in their day, they didn't grain feed their cattle. They didn't have a lot of fat. It wasn't marbled meat. Most of the fat is going to be inside, and that's the part that you offer to God. Now, what happens when the fat hits the fire? You know, it's, it's just burned up very, very quickly. That was the portion they would give to God. Usually the front shoulder they would give to the priest who offers the sacrifice, and he could eat it with his family. And then the rest of the animal was given to you and yours to consume there inside the tabernacle itself. It was like a big ceremonial dinner where God's getting a part of the sacrifice, the priest's getting a part of the sacrifice, and you and yours get to eat the rest of it. In fact, you had to eat the whole thing. You know, I can't believe I ate the whole thing. We had to eat the whole thing. If you left it over overnight or over two nights, in some cases, uh, you had to destroy it. So you and yours get to eat the rest of the animal. It is a ceremonial meal, you see, in which you're sort of sitting down at the table. God gets a part. The priest gets a part. You and yours get a part. It is not so much a sacrifice to make peace between you and God. It's a sacrifice to celebrate the peace that you have between you and God. And and may I point out that this wasn't just something peculiar to Israel. You find pagan religions doing exactly the same thing. That's why Paul deals with this matter of meat being sacrificed to idols. They would have their ceremonial meals in which a sacrificial victim is offered to their pagan god, and then the inherits to that, the worship of that god, would consume the meat that was offered to the idol. And Paul is pointing out that while on the one hand, if you find a piece of meat down in the meat market that's been offered to an idol, it's okay to eat it. If you don't have a conscience uh, about the idol, on the other hand, you're not to be found inside one of these pagan temples. It'd be like going down to the Roman Catholic Church and uh, going down front and having the priest put a wafer on my tongue. You know, is there anything wrong with wafers? You can get a box of them. It won't hurt you. But to do it in that circumstance means that I am joining in to their worship, you see. And so it was with the meat offered in sacrifice to idols. But Israel had their sacrifice. This is the common communal meal by which you enjoy with one another your peace and your communion with God. But you'll notice then in Leviticus 4, and I put a little dash line across there to indicate that now we've had a different kind of class. Within these five classes, you can sort of divide them into two halves or two parts. The first part of these sacrifices that we just discussed tend to indicate the positive things that we offer to God, the things that God commands us to do. But I would have you remember that what God demands of us is really two things. Not only are we to do what he commands us, there's a righteousness demanded of us, there is also the necessity of something being offered for our sin. Now, do you, do you understand both those things? It's not enough just to not do what God has commanded us not to do. In other words, when we sin, we need something to cover our demerit. But that's not enough. God just doesn't say, don't do bad. He says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is a positive righteousness that is demanded of you and me under the law. And I need two things as a sinner. I need something to cover my sin, which is what this second category is dealing with. I need something to pay for the transgression, the time I didn't do what God commanded me to do, and I need that which is perfect to supply what I should have done, the righteousness that I owed God. Do you understand? We're dealing with two things going on here. And so notice that once you get to the bottom two of this list, we're dealing now with a sin offering and a trespass offering. Now, the division between those two, uh, a lot of different controversy, It's not all that clear what qualified as one as opposed to the other. Uh, Some say, the Jews would say, that the sin offering was dealing with uh, unintentional sin, while the guilt offering or the trespass offering was more of you knew you were sinning. Uh, In certain cases, it appears that the sin offering deals with sort of just your general sinfulness, 
whereas the trespass offering was more for a specific act of your sin that has caused loss to a neighbor and you have to pay restitution. There's all sorts of ideas concerning what the actual difference is between a sin offering and a trespass or guilt offering. But let's deal especially with the sin offering because that's the one that's going to be important to us this morning. In the case of a sin offering, you're offering a sacrifice to pay, to atone, to reconcile you to God because of sin. Now, let us sort of focus ourselves on the fact that the sin offering itself had some strange things going on. Let me have you guys go to the second graphic here. Now, everybody with me so far? And may I remind you that the altar was the place that you are reconciled to God. It's the place the sacrifice is being offered, but it's also considered, I'm quoting here out of Malachi chapter 1, as God's table. This is God's table, and He's getting His part, and you're getting your part, and so forth. But in the case of the sin offering, you have four different situations. You have a situation where it is the priest... He's called the anointed priest there in Leviticus 4, and some take that to be the high priest. But essentially, it's when the priest has sinned, he offers a calf, and he takes part of the blood inside the tabernacle and sprinkles it against the veil that hangs there between the holy place and the holy of holies. In other words, remember, you only go into the holy of holies one time a year, and only the high priest can go in that one day. Till then, however, when there is a sin offering to be offered for a priest, you would take the blood inside in the holy place, sprinkle it against the bottom of the veil seven times. You would go back and apply part of the blood to the horns of the altar and then pour the rest of the blood out at the base of the altar. Then the carcass, notice, part of the fat around the interior organs is again burned on the altar. That's God's part. And then the rest of the animal is taken outside the camp and burned. That's going to be significant. Now notice in the case of the congregation sinning and a sin offering being offered for the congregation. Again, you offer a calf. Notice the priest as the representative of the people. When he sins, it's the equivalent of the whole people sinning. And when the whole people sin, it's equivalent to the priest sinning. In other words, the whole lump of them are sinning. So when the congregation sins, again, you offer a calf. Again, you do exactly the same thing with the blood. You take it inside the tabernacle, sprinkle it seven times against the veil, Apply part of it to the horns of the altar, pour the rest of it out at the base, and again you take the calf outside the camp and burn it with fire. But then notice, in the case of a ruler, we have not a calf, but a male goat. And this time, the blood is applied to the horns of the altar, the remainder of the blood poured out. But notice, no blood is taken inside the holy place this time. No blood is sprinkled against the veil. And this time, the fat is burned on the altar, but the animal is to be eaten by the priest that offers it. Now, notice the difference. In the other two cases, you didn't have any meat left. The carcass is taken outside the camp and burned completely. In this case, in the case of the ruler offering the male goat, the priest offers it, he gets to eat it. And the blood is not taken inside. It's simply applied to the altar and poured out. Notice exactly the same thing is going on if it is simply the common man of Israel who sins. In this case, a female goat is offered as the sin offering. Same thing as above. The blood is applied to the horns of the altar. The remainder of it poured out. The fat is burned on the altar. And again, the carcass of the animal is eaten by the priest. Now, I want you to specifically note the instruction that is given to the priest. Would you go to Leviticus chapter 6, just a minute? Leviticus chapter 6. Once you go through these five classes of sacrifices in Leviticus 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, and in fact into chapter 6 a little bit, 
Then in the middle of chapter 6, you go through them again. You go through the same five classes, but this time the instructions are more pointed to the priest himself. In other words, there's sort of a general description of the sacrifice in the first five chapters, and then there's these specific directions that are going to pertain to the priest alone here starting in the middle of chapter 6. Look at Leviticus 6, verse 24. The Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. It's not just holy, it's most holy. It's particularly, especially holy. The priest that offers it for sin shall eat it. In the holy place shall it be eaten in the court of the tabernacle of the congregation. And whatsoever shall touch the flesh thereof shall be holy. Do you realize what a unique situation this is? That we have numbers of cases where that which is holy touches that which is defiled, and that which is holy becomes defiled because of the contamination. Y'all familiar with that? In other words, if, if you've got holy stuff, if the priest got holy stuff and the sinful man touches it, it becomes unholy, unclean. If you've got holy meat and you put it in a pan that's unclean, the meat becomes unclean. Most of the time, the sinfulness, the contamination of uncleanliness, attaches itself to the clean. Here's a unique situation in where this is so holy, this meat, that whoever touches it, shall be holy. And who gets to touch it? The priest. He alone gets to eat this particular sacrifice. Let, let's read on here. Verse 27 again. Whatsoever shall touch the flesh thereof shall be holy. And when there is sprinkled of the blood thereof upon any garment, thou shalt wash that whereon it was sprinkled in the holy place. You're not to be defiled by the blood at all. But the earthen vessel wherein it was sieved or cooked shall be broken. If it's sieved in a brass pot, it shall be scoured and rinsed in water. In other words, you can't reuse the implement unless it's made out of metal. All the males among the priests shall eat thereof. It is most holy. Notice that this is something that only the priest gets to partake of. Nobody else. Just the males who alone were priests. And this is the critical verse for our study this morning. Verse 30. And no sin offering whereof any of the blood is brought into the tabernacle of the congregation to reconcile in the holy place shall be eaten. It shall be burned in the fire. Okay, think with me on verse 30. If you take the blood inside the holy place, and sprinkle it on the veil. You've got to take the animal, the carcass, outside the camp and burn it. Note the specification here. You never eat that one. The priest only gets to eat the one where the blood is not taken inside the tabernacle. So you get the, the rule, if the blood goes in, the carcass goes out. Okay? The only time the priest gets to eat this sacrifice is when the blood is not sprinkled against the veil inside the tabernacle. Okay, everybody got that? Now, this is part of the minutiae of the law of Moses, okay? I don't want you to get bored. I want you to get excited when you catch on to what is going on and why our writer refers to this whole process. Notice, he is assuming that his hearers know this. He may be assuming a little much in our case. But he's familiar with the fact that they should be familiar with this, being Jews, being Hebrews, and perhaps, in fact, some of them serving as priests, they would know all about this. In fact, we learn a little later here in Leviticus, the first day that the priesthood fires up, uh, Aaron makes a mistake, and Moses gets on his case, because he should have eaten this thing, and instead he took it outside and burned it. But a little later in Leviticus we learn yet about another sin offering. Go to Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16. If you think about it, what has been going on all through the year is that sin offerings are being offered and blood is being taken inside the holy place and sprinkled on that veil. I sometimes wonder what that thing must have looked like 
after a few hundred years of having blood sprinkled on the bottom of that veil. But over and over and over, the priest would go in through the air, and it's sort of like blood is building up on that veil. And then one time a year, on the tenth day of the seventh month, you have a special sin offering. It's the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It's that one day that the one man can actually go inside the Holy of Holies. So keep in mind, it's almost as if all that blood has been building up on the outside of the veil through the year, and now the special day has arrived when the high priest, and the high priest alone, everybody else has to be out of the tabernacle, only the high priest can go inside, and he offers again two sin offerings. He offers one for himself. Since he's the high priest, what did we say he has to offer? The calf. He offers a calf for his sin. But then he offers a sin offering for the congregation, and it's a strange one, it's a special one, it's two goats. One of the goats, you know, is the scapegoat. He's going to confess the sin of Israel over it and send it out in the wilderness to die. The other goat, however, the sin offering for the congregation, is slain. The blood is taken this time inside the Holy of Holies. Again, it's sprinkled seven times, but not on the veil outside. It's sprinkled seven times on the mercy seat that is over the Ark of the Covenant. So notice that Leviticus 16 is an entire chapter dedicated to what happens on this very special day on Yom Kippur when the one day of the year that the high priest is able to go inside, sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat. But the question is, what happens to the carcass of the animal that he takes inside? Well, true to everything we might expect from what we have learned so far here, is that indeed in chapter 16, uh, notice in verse 3, he brings the ram and the bullock for the sin offering. Uh, in verse 5, he takes of the congregation the two goats for a sin offering. But notice now in chapter 16, verse 14, he takes of the blood of the bullock, sprinkles it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward, and before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people. Bring its blood within the veil. Do, that, do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat. And upon, uh, before the mercy seat he shall make an atonement for the holy place. Notice verse 27. And the bullock for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall one carry forth without the camp, and they shall burn in the fire their skins and their flesh and their dung. Notice again, you've taken the blood inside the tabernacle. In fact, this time, inside the Holy of Holies, you've sprinkled that blood on the mercy seat. Again, when you go inside with the blood, what happens to the body, the carcass of the animal? It goes outside, and it is completely burned. Now, undoubtedly, you all see the significance of that, right? Of course not. I wouldn't have thought anything about it either. But it is this fact, if we go back now to the book of Hebrews, back to our text, that we will see that the writer is drawing our attention to this very thing that we've just read about in the Law of Moses. Notice in Hebrews 13, verse 11. The writer says, For the bodies or the carcasses of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin. Notice he's talking about the one day of the year, Yom Kippur, the big sin offering. Okay, But you brought the body inside the sanctuary. He says they are burned without the camp. So notice he is drawing our attention to the fact of what we've just read in the Law of Moses. The blood on that day, the most holy day, the special day, the big sin offering for the entire year, the one that all the others have sort of been leading up to and building up to, the blood of that offering is taken inside the Holy of Holies, sprinkled on the mercy seat, but again, the carcass of the animal is taken outside the camp and burned. Now what is the significance of all of this. 
I want to have you notice that the law of Moses does a lot of stuff. It's, it's a very multifaceted system. On the one hand, the law of Moses tended to objectify sin. Gave us a boundary line. It drew a line in the sand, said anything over there is sin, everything over here is okay. We see that going on in the law of Moses. If you want to see an objectification, well, you know what I'm saying. You want to see sin brought out in the open. You want to see what constitutes sin, what's not sin, what is sin. The law of Moses will do that for you. Won't keep you from sinning, you understand, but it'll tell you. It's like an MRI. It won't give you cancer, but it'll show you if you've got it. In the same sense, the law of Moses is not that which will either make you sinful or make you righteous. It will, however, bring out whether you are. It will show to everybody's eyes which side of that line you're on. That's one thing it does. Number two, the law of Moses also points us to a remedy beyond itself. It points us to Christ in its types and its shadows and all these rituals. I'm sure you know one thing that we are pretty well schooled on is that the sacrifices that were offered under the law are pointing us to the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to his baptism and said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, the people didn't go, Huh? We don't know what that means. We, don't, we never saw that happen. They saw that happen all the time. They knew how a lamb takes away sin, right? It's offered in sacrifice. So we are acquainted with that fact, that the law of Moses not only showed what's sin, it also showed us that there's someone coming. It's pointing us to the fulfillment. They're shadows, as we've seen throughout our study of the book of Hebrews. These are shadows. These are types. These are examples the real thing, the reality, is to be found in Jesus Christ. That leads us to the third thing the law does. And this is the one we sometimes overlook, is that the law also points to itself and says, I can't do it for you. You're going to need something besides me. In other words, on the one hand, the law defines sin and defines righteousness but the law, on the other hand, says, you'll never get there by me. The law also points out its own deficiencies. And we've seen that, haven't we, in our study? The fact that over and over again, the priest, every time you get a good one, what happens to him? Kicks the bucket. He's dead. He's gone. You've got to replace him. You get him. He's there for a little while. Then he kicks the bucket. You just constantly have a steady stream of priests. Because they're simply natural men. They're subject to death. And the very fact that you've got to keep replacing them shows that they're not getting the job done. And if that doesn't show it to you, think about the statement we've had in Hebrews 10 that the priests stand at the altar offering the same sacrifices day after day after day for sin. What is that saying? It's not working. It's the very conclusion that we read back there in chapter 10, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats can take away sin. In other words, here's the Mosaic law that gives to the priests this, the blood of these bulls and goats to use in things like this, and yet at the same time, the law is screaming at us, it's not working. You're never going to attain perfection by me. Because... Whatever they offered today, they're going to have to do the same thing tomorrow, over and over again. In fact, back in chapter 10, he points to the high priest on the Day of Atonement. That one great day, you think, if anything's ever going to do this for us, surely what the high priest does on that day, because this isn't just one of the low guys on totem pole. This is the big boy. This is the high priest. And this isn't just any run-of-the-mill sacrifice. This is a sacrifice that goes on on this great day. You understand? Surely, if anything the law can do for us is going to help us, this one can do it. But go back and read the first verses of chapter 10 again of Hebrews. He has to confess sin over the head of the scapegoat. You ever thought about how that'd work? What's the high priest going to say? Well, you know, this year, what, what sins has Israel committed? Well, we committed murder, adultery, theft, lying, stealing. Next year. When he gets up there and he puts his hand on the head of that scapegoat, what's he going to confess that year? Well, we committed murder, adultery, lying, stealing, cheating. You understand? 
The writer of Hebrews says the high priest has to remember every year, and he remembers the same sins over and over and over again. The law demands that he does it. That if this really put away sin, they would be forgotten. You wouldn't have to bring them up again. So do you understand, in our study of the book of Hebrews, we've had this thing shouting at us that the law cannot possibly do for you what you need done for you. You better be looking for something else. You want to find perfection before God. You're not going to find it in this system. And the law itself bears witness of that. I I say it's like the little toys I grew up with in the early 50s, sort of my earliest memories the, the little toys my mom and dad come home with, little airplane, little metal thing, says Made in Japan. Made in Japan. That meant it's going to fall apart in five minutes. I mean, this was this old cheapy stuff they made in Japan right after World War II. Of course, today you get something that's made in Japan that lasts forever, okay? Uh, how time changes. But it's the fact that this just isn't going to last It's not going to do it for you. After all, it's just a little model airplane. It's not a real airplane, and it's not going to last. That's what the law is giving you. That lesson over and over and over again. You need something bigger, something greater than what the law can do for you. Notice that now in our text, our attention is being drawn to yet another one of these anomalies in the law that shows that the law can't give you what you really need. Because notice the law is giving a restriction here upon the very sacrifices that we would think of all the sacrifices in the law. The, the, for instance, the offering of the sin offerings on the Day of Atonement, if any sacrifice the law is going to give is going to do it for us, that, it ought to be that one. And what is the restriction? That on these lesser sin offerings, the priest can eat it. They can, eat, they can get holy through eating that meat. But on the one that just might do it for you, when blood is actually brought inside the Holy of Holies, you can't touch that carcass. And our author in our text says they have no right to eat it. In other words, they are forbidden to eat that meat. Now, am I just spinning my wheels up here? Are you all with me? You understand what I'm saying? In other words... The better you would think that the sacrifice comes to actually covering sin, the more forbidden you are from partaking of it. If you want to get holy by eating something holy, you'd think this would do it, and that's the one you can't touch. That's the one you're commanded to take outside the camp and burn it. You can't eat of that one. The food... That makes men holy. The sacrifice that will actually atone for your sin is forbidden. It is restricted to those who serve that altar. They can't eat it. But notice there's another group of priests. We call ourselves New Testament priests. Are you familiar with the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer? What do we mean by that? We mean that every Christian is in the truest sense a priest of God. Now, we have a great high priest that's been the subject of the book of Hebrews. Our great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. But the rest of us are to be understood as priests. Now, why would you call a Christian a priest? Well, what does a priest do? Number one, the priest had an access into the tabernacle that the common man of Israel did not have. He had access to the presence of God that was forbidden to the common man in Israel. Everybody else had to stay back. Just the priest could go into the tabernacle. Notice that the very thing that we're told we've got in the New Testament under the system of Jesus is that we have access We're told in Hebrews 4.16, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. I'm not sure they ever came boldly. But you and I are exhorted to come boldly to the very throne of grace to find grace to help and mercy in a time of need. 
we have access to the very throne of God, which the Israelite in the Old Testament didn't have, only the priest had. Number two, the priest offered sacrifices. Are you and I sacrifice officers? Officer? Offer, you know what I'm trying to say. Are you and I in the business of offering sacrifices? Comes out well that way. Well, of course we are. In fact, we're told in Romans 12 to present our bodies a living sacrifice unto God. Notice, are you in Hebrews 13? Look in verse 15. By Him, that is by Christ, therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God. We're in the sacrifice business. We're to offer sacrifices, not what they offered. We are a different kind of priest, but we have access. And we are told in the Scripture that we're priests. We're never explicitly told that in the book of Hebrews, but it's written large throughout the entire letter. And in the book of Revelation, we're said to be a kingdom of priests to our God. Are we not? In fact, three times in the book of Revelation, believers are referred to as priests of God, kingly priests. Or to use Peter's language, we're right here close to 1 Peter. Just a book away. Flip over there a moment. First Peter, chapter three, two. I'm sorry. First Peter, chapter two, in verse nine. What does Peter write? You are a chosen generation. These are all labels by which you may call, define the people of God. Number one, they're an elect people. They're a chosen generation. But look at the second one. They are a royal priesthood, a kingly priesthood. Exactly what we read in the book of Revelation. You're a kingdom of priests unto our God. And then, of course, you're a holy nation, a peculiar people. All of those different phrases by which we can identify the people of God. The one we're interested in is that Peter is calling you and I royal priests. And so notice that we as New Testament believers are ourselves priests. And notice that what is going on here in our text is that the writer is drawing a contrast between priests that serve that altar under the law of Moses, the priests that eat of that altar, and another altar that they can't eat of. Notice he says in the first verse of our text, they have no right to eat from our altar if they serve that altar. That there is another altar of which to eat. The altar being the place of sacrifice. The place where reconciliation and atonement is made. And if they serve that altar, the one inside the tabernacle, the one that they offered under Moses, they have no right to eat of our altar. We have an altar that they have no right to eat of, and we can say it works the other way around. We have no right to eat of theirs if we're at our altar. Now, what in the world is that saying? It's pointing out that what was forbidden for them under the law of Moses, namely, if the blood actually makes an atonement of some sort, you can't eat it that what is forbidden to them is offered to us as New Testament priests in this day. That the sin offering that truly puts away sin is available for you and I to eat of it. But to do it, we've got to turn our back on that other altar. We can't ride the fence here. We can't have our hope in the law of Moses and in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can't do both. We've got to choose one or the other. I either am going to go to this altar and either as a priest eat of it or as one who has the priest acting as their substitute, if you're just a common man in Israel, or I turn my back on that altar and I go to this other altar. And that other altar, by the way, is where? Outside the camp. Now, that's my topic next Sunday. If the Lord allows and preserves us through this week, and you come back next week, that's where we're going to pick up. Because that's the other half of this thing, is that that altar is outside the camp. 
Notice that clearly the writer now draws our attention to the fact that Jesus was not offered inside the temple. He was not sacrificed on the altar inside that great temple. He was instead taken outside the gate, outside the camp, and crucified. And the language is, let's go forth unto Him outside the gate, outside the camp. In other words, in order to partake of Him to feed upon this sin offering. In other words, in their case, they couldn't eat the sin offering. In our case, we can. It is offered to us that Christ is going outside the camp to make, how does He put it here? Verse 12, Jesus Himself, that He might sanctify the people with His own blood, suffered without the gate. The sacrifice that truly puts away the sin of God's people is offered in Jesus Christ. And He went outside the camp, outside the gate. You and I have an access to that altar that they who serve that altar in there can't eat at. Am I making that clear? In other words, you neither eat in there as a priest under the Levitical system, or you can go outside the camp and eat at this altar out here. We have an altar. We've got a table. Because, again, that's what the altar was. I'm pulling, I realize some of you may be saying you're just pulling that out of thin air. Go back and read the first chapter of Malachi. And you'll see that in that day they were offering God uh, three-legged lambs and diseased critters and... Uh, God takes them to task and says, you say that the table of the Lord is contemptible. In other words, you've made God's table by putting polluted offerings on it. Say, serve it to you, governor. See if he'll eat it. Take him one of your sick lambs. You know, I'm sure they were looking around and said, well, I got a lamb over there. He's about to die. I'll go offer him to God. Said, offer him to you, governor. See if he's pleased with it. But notice what they're saying. The table of the Lord is contemptible because the altar was God's table. And what we are understanding here is that God has provided a table for His people from which to partake of the one sacrifice that will truly take away sin. You and I have permission to come out there to that altar as priests and eat it, consume it. Ingest it. There's holy food out there. And eating that food will make you holy. Eating that food will not only give you physical life, it will give you everlasting life. You get the picture? There's a table out there on which the one sacrifice that truly took away sin is available for His priests to come and eat and to feed upon His flesh. The very thing they couldn't do under the law of Moses is open and available to you and I. We've got an altar out there. They have no right to eat of it. But we have gone outside the camp and it is available to us. We can partake of this food, this offering. And in doing so, we can ingest this holy meal, and be made holy, be made sinless, be given life everlasting. You say, where in the world are you getting that? Was anybody awake a while ago when we read John chapter 6? Go back there with me. John chapter 6. You want a little commentary on this? Consider what is being said. I'm just going to pick and choose. We've read the, pretty much the whole text here, but John 6, in the last half, where Jesus is dealing with Himself as the bread of life. Notice in verse 51, John 6, verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life 
of the world. This bread is actually flesh, and it's actually sacrificed flesh. You see? It's my flesh that I will give for the life of the world, that I will lay down in sacrifice. Where, where are we going to find, where are we going to get the stuff that that sacrifice provides for us? You'll find it in the flesh that is offered, sacrifice for the sins of the world. He calls that the bread of life. Why? Because you eat this bread, you're going to live forever. Is that what he says? Look at verse 33. For the bread of God is He. You know, they're clamoring for a sign. I find that strange. You, you think, I, I'll say this for sake of our Pentecostal friends out there, is that everybody thinks if they just get a sign, that'll, that'll do it for me. If I see a miracle, that'll let me believe in God. These folks had just had a great big sign the day before they had eaten of the five loaves and the two fishes. They'd just seen a sign. That didn't suffice them. The next day, they're still clamoring for a sign. And you'll see that they want a particular sign. They say, Moses gave manna down from heaven. Moses called down bread from heaven and fed the people of Israel in the wilderness. We want you to do that sign. We want you to jump through that hoop. And Jesus responds, "Uh uh-uh. I can't do it because God's already done it. You're wanting me to send bread down from heaven. God's already sent bread down from heaven. I am the bread of life sent down from heaven. Notice in verse 32, My Father gives you the true bread. Oh, that word true is interesting in the Gospel of John. He's the true light. He's the true lamb. He's the true temple. Here He's the true bread. This is the real bread, you see. You you want manna like Moses was able through God to bring down to Israel. They ate it and they died. They're all dead and gone. But what's different about this bread? Verse 35, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believes on me shall never thirst. Verse 49, Your fathers did eat man in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread that cometh down from heaven that a man may eat of it and never die. No wonder it's called the bread of life. Like that meat from those lesser sin offerings is holy. And whatever it touches, it makes holy. This bread is holy bread. It's He who came down from heaven. It's His flesh given in sacrifice. And not only is it His flesh... Oh my, to think of telling a Jew he needs to drink blood. You realize how foreign that was? There's all kinds of laws in the Old Testament about not eating or drinking blood. Now, I don't realize, I don't guess too many of you have a blood drinking habit. But I mean, you know, come on. There are places in the world where they do eat blood. Especially in the Gentile world in Paul's day, they love their bloody meat. They'd strangle the animal rather than slitting their throat and bleeding them. And to a Jew, that was absolutely abhorrent. You would never, ever eat or drink the blood of a sacrificial animal. It's always poured out to God. But in this case, John six fifty three, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, ye have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed. It's the real food. It's the real meat. My blood is drink indeed. You want something you can drink and live forever? That's what my blood is, you see? He that eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. Have I proved my point? Have I made my case? Well, what is this talking about then? 
There are those who say, well, this is talking about what we call the Lord's table, communion. I would certainly agree that the Lord's table illustrates this, speaks of this, but, but to say that the, by eating that cracker and juice fulfills this is to make the same mistake Israel was making. Thinking of it as physical bread, wanting physical manna, something I'm putting my mouth and actually chew on in taste. Or as the Roman Catholics have perverted the whole thing with their hocus pocus, supposedly turning the wafer and the wine into the actual flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. The Roman Catholics sort of do in reverse what the Jews did. The Jews held on to the carnal instead of grasping the physical, the the spiritual, I should say. The Catholics took the spiritual, turned it into something carnal. Went exactly back to where you started from. This has nothing to do with what you put in your mouth and chew. That's not how you eat this bread. Anybody interested in knowing how you eat this bread? How you drink this blood? You still here in John 6? Verse 35, I'm the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger. That's how you eat. He that believes on me shall never thirst. That's how you drink. By coming, receiving, believing in faith. What Christ, our great sin offering, has done for us, we then are able to eat and drink of His sacrifice. We are made partakers of Christ. We are ingesters of Christ. Can I shock you again by saying faith sucks? It is the organ of reception. It's like a tick on the back of a dog, sucking the life out of the dog. Faith saves your soul because it sucks at the breast of divine promise and it sucks out the grace that is offered to us in those promises. It's how I eat this stuff that you eat it. You'll never die. You will live forever. And you do it by faith, by trusting by devouring, by ingesting who Jesus is and what He came to do. And there is in the midst of John 6 that great verse that we Calvinists just love. I'm talking about verse 44. No man can come to Me except the Father who sent Me drawing. But notice how we ignore the context we forget that this whole discussion is about eating and drinking. And when Jesus says, No man can come to me except the Father who sent me drawing, come to him and what? Eat, drink. Nobody can come except the Father drawing. We have an old statement you can lead the horse to water, but you can't make him drink. We could say another way you can take the man to the table, but you can't make him eat. God can. That's what that verse is saying. God can. We learn of a parable where a king gives a wedding feast for his son, sends out the invitation, soup's on, he's sitting there on the table waiting on you. They had other things to do, better things to do. We're not coming. They all, with one consent, made excuse. There's the heart of the natural man. Bread, the bread of life, is offered to him. As many as will, if any man will come, he can partake of Christ as his Savior. He can ingest this meat, this blood, and live forever. It's offered to him. It's spread out on the table for him. The gospel feast is before him. And with one consent, lost man says, I've got other things to do. I've got other places to go. I've got other food to eat. Unless the Father draws. The word in Greek is strong. Drag. Unless my Father drags him, he's not coming. 
And that, of course, in our mind, sort of gives us the idea of somebody kicking and screaming. You know, he's got me by the foot and he's just dragging me in there and I'm clawing my way, you know. The next verse tells us how God drags us. Verse 45, they shall all be taught of God. Everyone, therefore, that have heard and learned of Him comes to me. No, they're not dragged against their will. They are dragged as God informs their will, teaches their will, teaches their heart of their need of this food. That's how they're brought. That's how they're drawn. And so if you're sitting here this morning saying, well, I don't know. You know, I'm a sinner and I need life and I want to be saved, but I'm just afraid that if I went on my own, I wouldn't be one of these because I've got to wait for God to drag me. Sinner, do you want life? Do you want a Savior? You say, yes, I do. That's God's dragging. Do you understand? That's the way He does it. He doesn't call us against our will. He changes our will. He makes us willing in the day of His power. We're so willing, we'll bust down the door. We'd better not get in the way of a sinner whom God is dealing with. He'll flat run over you to get to Christ. Is that your heart this morning? Then come and welcome to Jesus Christ. That is the very evidence of His token. You say, well, that's just not fair. Well, do you want to come? No, not me. Well, then why are you complaining? I don't like it that God messes around with people's will. Is He messing with yours? No. Well, then you like it. You want it. Why are you complaining? I'm one that He messed around with my will. I'm not complaining. Hallelujah! He messed around with my will. Or else I would never have tasted. I would have refused. I would have gone to hell just like everybody else. Praise God that He messed around. That He taught me from above of these divine things. How does He teach us? Sometimes He teaches us by letting us get our fill of the world of sin. That's how He broke me of my chocolate milk addiction. Some of you have heard the story of how little old country school I went to in the fourth, first grade. My good friend Mike Holmes and I, we, they were gonna, we loved chocolate milk. And it came some, it was a Friday after, a Friday right at the end of the day, and they had a bunch of these little cartons of milk that were gonna expire, you know, the old USDA cartons. And some of them apparently had already started to turn a little bit. And anyway, they let us drink all we wanted. I probably drank 30 of those little cartons of chocolate milk. My buddy did exactly the same thing. And over the weekend, we were absolutely sick as dogs. And from that point on, I have never liked chocolate since. He broke me. He taught me by letting me get my fill of it. And sometimes that's how God... Oh, I pray, Barry, that that's the case with Beverly. Oh, how I pray that one of these days, you're going to get to the end of your rope and say, like that prodigal son, this is nuts. This is stupid. What am I doing? There's life back there at my father's house. I'm perishing here. May God grant it. And He teaches us by turning the light of glory on the face of Jesus Christ. That as Sarah sang earlier today, I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood. And He did it for me. He died that I might have life. And that I see the cross of Christ in a light that I've never seen it before. I'm sick of sin. And I've got to have Jesus. May God do that for you if you're outside the kingdom this day. Oh, we've got an altar that they have no right to eat of who serve that altar. 
We've got an altar. We got the real stuff. We got the real food. We got the true bread that came down from heaven. We've got the holy stuff. Eat it and you'll live forever. Come, welcome to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, astound us with the privileges that we have through Jesus Christ. That what the law couldn't give us, what the law couldn't offer us, You have freely bestowed it in the person of Jesus, Your Son. Father, You've given us a sin offering, but You've given us the right to eat of it. And help us, Lord, not to simply come and stand back and stand afar off, but may we come near and take it and eat it and ingest it. That we live by it that we are in Him, and He is in us. That He is our life. Thank You for doing what the law couldn't. And may the law shut men up to Your Son as their only hope. Thank You, Father, for those of us who know You. What else can we say but thank You? And Father, we come to offer ourselves not as sacrifices for sin, but as living sacrifices to serve and do the will of He who gave Himself for us. Father, what else can we do? What other thing can we repay You with except now to lay down our life because not of this debt of law but this debt of love that we owe your Son. What sweet duty to serve, to sacrifice for He who gave Himself for us, who loved us and washed us in His own blood, who gave Himself for us to ingest and have life. May it be the theme of our song. May we never get over it or beyond it. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.